What's up? I was uh, a little taken aback last night when I received a text at uh, 9.40 Eastern Standard Time saying, like, oh, oh, hey, by the way, I just, I forgot. I forgot to tell you about this thing that we were doing tonight. Oh, shucks. I guess we'll have to not include you in that. No, that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was, that was my bad. I, uh. We have a great conversation on this episode with Braxton Brewington of the Debt Collective. We got into uh, student loan payments resuming, Biden is still trying to cancel student debt, but as Braxton explains in a very long, drawn-out, roundabout way that is still subject to legal challenges, ways they could do it now, immediately. They still have the authority to do it. We get into all of that, but as Rob pointed out, I forgot to tell him that they confirmed that they had someone available. <laughs> and when I went to send him the recording link, I realized that I had not told him the, t- the time. So Rob got the night off. No, uh, no, I, I, I'm joking around here because it was actually all right uh, for two reasons. Um, you know, I've talked a number of times why I think it's important for everyone around the world to pay attention to what's going on in the U.S. government, and I'm I've been kind of unapologetic about my interest in that. Um, I do think it's a little weird when people from around the world ignore what's going on in their own countries to exclusively focus on America, which is something that I try not to do. But you know, I've explained why I think that's important. Sometimes I think when we get into the really nitty gritty policy details, I start to feel a little insane talking about it. Um, so. I think it was it was okay for me to to for you to take the lead on that one, uh, and I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. And the other reason I didn't mind is because I was by the time that I heard that you were doing that, I was settled in. I had some snacks, and I was watching the new Indiana Jones film, which I had not, I kind of intended to go see that in the theaters, and didn't. It was kind of it was kind of a flop, so it was only in the theaters for a little while. So I I checked that out last night. This has to be. The last one, because wasn't the one before this also pretty bad? The Crystal Skull? I haven't seen that yeah. one either. I saw that in the theater, and I didn't hate it, although I think it got worse the more I thought about it. But it was definitely definitely a dip in quality uh, from the first three. And that was still Spielberg, and this one, Spielberg's passed the torch to James Man- Mangold, I think his name is. It was... Uh, it was not bad. I didn't mind it. I and it was kind of an enjoyable watch. There's some nice uh, action sequences in there. Um, Harrison Ford was engaged, like he seems he wants to be there and is like trying to bring something uh, to the character. What kind of final send off for the character? I guess there was just like there, the, I think when we get into talking about this kind of stuff, I get into kind of like old man yelling at cloud mode, 
where I just think no matter how much, you know, work is going into it, you look at the original three films and, uh, they're shot by you know by Spielberg at the height of his powers. They're all shot on film. They look fantastic, and I just find movies now with these modern filmmaking techniques, even with the huge hundred plus million dollar budgets or whatever, even more than that, just doesn't look as good. It just doesn't look as good as it did in 1989 um, or when or wherever else you know. And so that that bothers me. I mean, you got Harrison Ford is very old, and he's in there like doing these stunts and punching guys and and driving these being involved in these kind of car chases which kind of like it's fun it's good to see him in the hat and stuff and and doing that but it's a little bit the suspension of disbelief is maybe a little trickier when it's this like 80 year old man out doing this kind of stuff and uh, there's this whole 20 minute sequence at the beginning of the movie that has like de-aged young harrison ford basically and uh it's cool like it's a really cool uh, sequence it's kind of it it tickles those nostalgia centers of your brain to see young Harrison Ford out doing this kind of stuff again but it's also this weird kind of uncanny valley thing it looks kind of real but it also looks a little bit like a video game cutscene. and it's like he's speaking and he's kind of got an old man voice that doesn't totally match up with the with what the lips are doing it's just kind of weird. It's kind of weird and off-putting, and I couldn't, I couldn't really get into as much as maybe I I would have liked to. But overall, I thought it was just it, okay. You know, it was worth watching. It was enjoyable. But mm-hmm. I don't know if we need these modern Indiana Jones movies. I think probably could have left left it alone after the third one and just not made any more of those films. Yeah, I haven't had any interest in seeing the new ones. I think because when you base a franchise off of a young adventurer. <laughs> and then when you go 30 years or so uh, between movies, I'm good. I, yeah. I think I'm good. Um, even there's a, there's a movie that I've just seen a ton of trailers for. I haven't seen the franchise, but the equalizer with Denzel Washington, the new equalizer is coming out. Yeah. And I remember when the first one came out, I never saw it, but even just Denzel Washington, is starting to look a lot older and he's like this action hero in that movie. And it's just, I just can't do it, man. I know, I know there's always a market for it and I know I'm a hypocrite because if they make another Terminator and it's Arnold, I'm watching it. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see I any care. of those new ones either though. I didn't see Genesis or whatever, any of those new ones. And I love those are essential parts of my childhood. Genesis. If that's the one I'm thinking of, Kind of just rewrites all of the franchise canon. Yeah. Which is kind of annoying. I love when they do that. Um, It's so stupid. But I've seen all of them and they're movies. (laughs) Like they 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 are are. movies. You can watch them. (laughs) The funniest (laughs) thing about um, like what you're saying too is that in Crystal Skull, they tried to like pass the torch to Shia LaBeouf. And kind of suggests that he's going to kind of be able to take over the reins of the franchise. And then in this one, they're just like, oh, yeah, by the way, he died in Vietnam. And uh, just completely like forget about that. (laughs) Forget about that whole part. We're moving on. We're moving on from the Shia uh, period. Well, we had a great conversation with Dave Anthony earlier this week. Yes. Paid interns can get access to that episode right now. Many of you have already listened to it. But it was it was a blast. We like... 
we like getting Dave worked up because we think yeah. that's where he's at. That was our mission going into this one. It was. <laughs> it was yeah. good. No, it was really good. People seemed to really respond to it as well and enjoyed the enjoyed this one. So if you're not a subscriber, if you're not a paid intern, we do encourage everyone uh, to subscribe to the podcast by visiting insurgentspod.com is where you can do that for $5 per month or $55 annually. As we've talked about a number of times, like um, I, we don't really, you know, we've been doing this podcast now three years and over 200 episodes. And then we have some of the very best guests out of any kind of political podcast that's going right now, not to toot my own horn or our own collective horn too much. Uh, but, you know, I think this is a pretty good show. And uh, it was a fantastic episode with Dave. I think we have a lot of really great bonus content. So if you're not subscribed already, folks, uh, if you enjoy the the free episode every week, get an additional episode. Uh, we spare no expense on those ones. We get some, some really great guests for those like Dave Anthony this week. And uh, that's it. Please subscribe to listen to that and future bonus content. Yeah, absolutely. We, we really appreciate everybody who has subscribed or will subscribe. It, you help keep this show going. Uh, you've helped us increase our technological capacity for this show. You know, sound quality, um, editing capacity, uh, video output. It's just been it's been a huge, huge help. We really appreciate it. We do not take it for granted. So, so thank you. Well, I was just wondering if, like, before we we get into the the bulk of this episode, whether you wanted to talk, whether you had anything to say about Mitch McConnell? Because I just wanted to say that, like, from Jordan and I, all the paid interns, Judy and HR, the entire uh, Insurgents LLC board of directors, we do. We may not agree with Mitch McConnell about much. Okay. But in the interests of civility and respectfulness, we do want to send our best wishes out to uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell for a speedy recovery. I'm sure he's going to get better any day now. He's looking great already. He's looking way healthier already. So we're all really concerned about his health, and uh, we just wanted to wish him a speedy recovery. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm just, I'm torn just to see somebody like that in a moment of weakness, a moment of vulnerability. Yep. Your heart can't help but just go out for him. I know. It's very, uh, very disturbing stuff. And um, no, I mean, like, uh, just, I just br- very briefly, like, I just, just wanted to comment on these kind of like sanctimonious kind of uh, lectures that come around every time, like, you know, he or another one of these old bastards that are, uh, you know, running the United States government, who wouldn't think twice to just like, step on any plebeian civilian poor person whoever to like if it was mildly going to make their day slightly more convenient and then when like when these moments when these objectively terrible monsters are suffering these like health consequences from their decades of like holding on to these seats of power and then you get these like finger wagging lectures from people like now 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 you must treat these people with respect like i don't really think that you do need to uh you know mitch mcconnell's literally his hands like his hands are all over really stopping any semblance of progress to ever really happen like within the u.s government even with the sort of bare minimum neoliberal reforms that people like joe biden or or barack obama want to make um and has objectively made life worse for many many people across the across the nation so I don't really think that that is true, that you need to treat people like that uh, 
with respect in these kind of moments. Um, and also you saw, like, you'll see comments kind of from the other side saying like, well, you're making fun of Mitch McConnell. Well, what about, what about Joe Biden and Dianne Feinstein? Yeah. Like maybe you should think about that. And it's like, yeah, the, all, there's all these yeah. decrepit old weird monsters that are <laughs> wielding the levers of power of the U S government. I think that is generally not a good thing, whether it's in the government, the Supreme court, like the fact that the whole government machine is basically being run by these incredibly old people that are falling apart, like, and are barely able to function anymore, let alone like legislate or act in a way that's going to be beneficial to other people. Yeah. I think that's actually bad to have. And I don't think that's a real, uh, encouraging sign for for the, what the u.s government is going to be capable of so yeah i, I actually agree that it that is bad as well and mitch mcconnell his term goes until uh, 2026 so oh, yeah i don't i do not see him holding on for that long so if they want to avoid a public disaster maybe just yank him yeah, yeah replace these people are somebody. really great at stepping down with dignity. <laughs> um, well, and people are saying too, like, oh, people are speculating that he's having a stroke. I'll have you know that it's just post-concussion syndrome because he can't stop falling down all the time. And it's like, that is not good. Like, you that's know, also that's, a that's also a problem. Yeah. But uh, anyway, it's just, I do find it kind of funny to see this, like this kind of creepy old freak, uh, <laughs> having these moments where he just completely loses it, like in these press conferences. And I just think it's, uh, you know, a pretty in- indicative sign of what's going on over there in the good old United States government. You know, pretty, it's kind of says it all right there. It speaks for itself. Yeah, we're sending lots of uh, prayers his yeah. way, uh, but let's get, let's get into our conversation with Braxton Brewington of the debt collective. Now, if you have student debt, you are going to have your payments and interest resume today. This is we're recording on September 1st. So you're expected to pay, start paying again next month in October. But Braxton and the Debt Collective have been thinking of some really great ways to help people get their debt canceled still because Biden still has that authority. So please be sure to listen all the way through the conversation because at the end, we talk about a tool that the Debt Collective has that may just be able to get your debt canceled. Fantastic. And Jordan's conversation with Braxton Brewington of the Debt Collective will be happening right after this. joined by Braxton Brewington of the Debt Collective. Braxton, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing well, thanks. Great, great. So tell tell me, tell listeners uh, who you are and what the Debt Collective is. The Debt Collective is an offshoot of Occupy Wall Street. So we are the nation's first union of debtors modeled after a labor union. And so the thinking is that just like workers stand together to demand better working conditions, higher pay, we believe debtors can do the same, right, and demand outright cancellation, write downs, changes to interest or our contracts. And so, you know, sort of in the wake of financialization and racial capitalism, where people are just sort of 
creating money out of thin air uh, because of financialization. You know, we believe debtors have a lot of power, um, be it medical debt, student debt, criminal legal debt, credit card debt, right? All those payments are owed to somebody, uh, the top 1%. Um, and so the Debt Collective is a union of debtors. We have dues-paying members um, across the country. And we've largely been waging this fight on student debt for the past few years. Um, and I am the spokesperson, one of the spokespeople for the Debt Collective. Nice. Now, this is a big week uh, for for borrowers who are expecting payments to resume, we're going to get into all of that uh, attempts at cancellation, the Supreme Court getting in the way, what steps people can take next and what to expect. But before, first, we have to get into something that is arguably much more important. I think all of our listeners will agree. It's a question that we ask of all of our guests, just so we know who we're dealing with and, and really if the conversation should continue. Now, Braxton, we've asked everybody, and it's now your turn. Braxton, are you a gamer? Oh, no, I'm not. I'm so sorry. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I This is going to make it. This is probably even worse than saying no. Um, I had a Game Boy. I did Pokemon Go in, like, 2016, whenever that was a thing. Um, I did... Um, what's the car game? Fat, um, Need for Speed. I did Need for Speed. I did Fantasy. I did, but I'm I'm not really a gamer. I'm sorry. Those all sound like gamer attributes to me. The ownership of a Game Boy, having played Pokemon Go, mobile games definitely still count. You you name drop Need for Speed. I think you you were talking about Final Fantasy. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and I um, let me think what else I have. I, and I do iMessage games, if that counts. Like, I still play, I'm the last one that still plays, like, pool with people. Um, oh, so. yes. It counts. All right. <laughs> All right. We, we, we found a way. We found a way. Braxton, you are, you are yeah. a gamer. You have that title proudly. Uh, there's many Thank of you. us, uh, and we, we are growing in numbers daily. So, so be proud. I was going to say, I actually just had a friend read me a statistic the other day that was like three or four billion people like play games. Like it's like half the, it's like, I can't remember what it was. It was a good, maybe it was a third of the planet. Like everyone plays games and I, I, yeah, I guess I don't. Oh, you do though. You, you pool. <laughs> I, I messaged pool. I, I think that counts. <laughs> We're getting you in there. Um, you're in the loud and proud majority. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's get to the the topic at hand. I mentioned student debt payments will resume. Uh, interest will start to resume now after Congress uh, ended the emergency pause that began uh, during COVID and was extended multiple times. Now you have... 40 million plus borrowers who are expecting to see their interest begin to accumulate and compound. And if they're not in forbearance, payments resume. Now, the Biden administration tried to cancel anywhere from 10 to 20,000 in student debt. The Supreme Court blocked that. 
we'll get into the specifics of how they tried to take action and what could come next. But top line, the debt collective has advocated for uh, forgiveness, for cancellation. They've helped people prepare. They're offering tools. I mean, just generally, what is happening this week and how is this going to impact tens of millions of people? I think to your first point, you know, it's important to talk about why the pause ended um, and why it couldn't have stayed. Um, you know, the pause didn't just end. Uh, the Biden administration um, and Congress negotiated it out of a debt ceiling deal a few months ago, um, which was, you know, arguably a, a, a fake negotiation. <laughs> um and so, you know, 45 million Americans who are burdened by student loans, rather than continue to benefit from that pause, had that pause ripped away from them, which was huge. I mean, people for the first time were able to actually pay down other types of debts that they wanted or have been trying to pay down. They were able to start a small business. People started having families. People just started to save for retirement. A lot of people just were able to get by for the first time. Um, and that's all been taken away because of the negotiation uh, to get rid of the pause. Not only to get rid of the pause, but to not have a pause without relief, which was sort of this huge conversation, right? If we're going to cancel student debt, that, you know, the Biden administration tied it together. We're going to implement relief uh, as we resume payments, uh, you know, sort of won't have one without the other. That's not happening because of the Supreme Court, which knocked down Biden's first attempt at student debt relief. Um, but with payments resuming um, in October and interest resuming in September, I think we're going to see a nightmare, and we're already starting to see that happen with people trying to, for the first time in over three years, figure out which payment plan they can enroll in, trying to figure out how they're going to pay a $400, $800, $1,200 a month bill uh, for the first time in several years. A lot of people, if they like just graduated um, in the past three or four years, they actually haven't had to pay on their student federal student loans ever. But for the first time, a lot of people are getting the, their first student loan bill ever, millions of people. So it's going to have huge consequences, both financially and politically. And um, it doesn't have to be this way. We can cancel student debt. We could issue another type of pause. Um, um, but unfortunately, that's not where we are right now. The economic theory that most liberals take is that a stronger economy is when the middle class has increased purchasing power. This is something that Robert Reich has, has championed uh, for, for years and I think, you know, many, even just party Democrats feel the same way. What is happening now is that millions and millions of people in the middle class who are the drivers of this economy will now, like you say, suddenly have to fork over, you know, 100, 200, 400. I mean, my initial estimate, I've talked about this before on the show, I've got $90,000 in student loan debt. And I went to two public schools and I went to two cheap, quote, cheap public schools. 
because I got a, a graduate degree and I graduated in December of 2019. So I was in that situation. I didn't really have to pay. Uh, and then everything was frozen. So I, like, like everyone else, it's just, Hey, you got to tighten the pocketbooks during COVID. So I, you know, that uncertainty from a global health crisis leading into a global economic crisis, you're holding on to every last dollar you can. So now it's my initial estimate was $980 per month. That's ridiculous. I can't afford that. <laughs> it's like the, the, all of a sudden, thankfully, oh. because I took a, I took a lower payment one, which in the end, because of that, just to afford that payment, the compounding interest is going to almost double what I pay in total by the end of the, by the end of the, the loan 2046, I will have paid an estimated like 170 something thousand on a $90,000 undergrad and and graduate degree combo. But like everybody now is forced into the situation where they're going to have to pay all this money to their servicer. And that money could be going to, you know, nights out with the family, uh, more groceries, clothes for their family, school supplies, all these things that are driving the economy. And ultimately the economic gains that the Biden administration is pointing to over the past few months to show, Hey, everything's great. Everything is great under this administration. Now you're going to see a reduction. Like you, you're there's no way that the economy continues to grow at this rate if people are suddenly having to pay off all of these loans there's two trillion dollars in student loan debt so at the debt collective what are you all seeing and expecting in terms of the economy that is a ridiculously high payment um and <laughs> i'm sorry i don't know why people think that's good for the economy because it's not um so, you know, what we're hearing is a very similar story. Um, people who are in very desperate situations, um, wondering if they should, I mean, think about how backwards this is, wondering if they should sell their home so that they can pay off their student loans. I mean, then where would you live? Like, why, why do we live in a society that would make someone ask such a question? Um, People who are trying to choose between making a student loan payment and a payment for their cancer treatment. People who are saying, I was expecting to get dental care in the next few years, and now I can't. Um, Down to just your sort of regular kitchen table issues of groceries, uh, baby formula, um, clothes, um, and paying the rent so that they can stay in their home. or just to get by. Um, So these are really impossible situations that people are going to be in. The alternative is relief, which, you know, if people were to to be economical about it, canceling student debt would boost the economy. One of the first things people say is they would purchase a home if they had student debt relief. Um, We hear all the time from people who would say, you know, if my student debt were to be canceled, I would be able to leave my abusive partner. Um, I would actually be able to move out of my parents' house at the age of 30-something, 40-something. People who say I would just be able to not be in debt for the first time in decades. Uh, People in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and later. Um, You know, canceling student debt 
actually creates jobs. It creates small businesses. Um, it would be a boon to the economy. And I think that the powers that be, big banks like SoFi, folks in Congress and in the federal government, et cetera, um, aren't actually super um, against the sort of economic boon that would happen to the economy, but really are just still stuck with this moral hazard type thinking that people should just pay what they owe um, and that you shouldn't get off scot-free as if we don't cancel debt for the wealthiest 1%, as if we didn't cancel PPP loans to the tune of $800 billion. And it's just a huge double standard. Um, and the reality is it keeps the working class down. It makes it more difficult to um, join a union. It makes it more difficult to, um, um, you know, do anything in your local community, like support a small business or live a life of dignity. Um, we hear from a lot of people who said over the pause, I've been able to explore one of my best passions, like doing art or, <laughs> um, you know, I started a nonprofit and that type of creativity gets sucked away when uh, you start student loan payments back. So it's both the economy. It's also very personal and moral and um, really gets to our humanity. I think a lot about what my life, just as I know what millions and millions of other people's lives would look like if we didn't have this debt burden. You know, this is something that would free up a lot of space to just pursue the American dream. I, that's that's not asking a lot, right? Just have a home, have a stable life. I'm not asking for anything opulent. I don't, I don't, I don't really partake or enjoy anything opulent. But I do want stability, and I think that is a necessity for everybody that they they are entitled to. Everybody deserves economic stability in this country. And unfortunately, uh, corporate America, the political elite, uh, student loan servicers, they don't, they don't give a shit about that. It is, how do we keep this going? So these servicers get their money. So these people are more reliant on shitty jobs. So these people are willing to accept a raw deal uh, in the economy just because they need to make these payments so they don't default I mean, this is this is totally bogus. But one of the things that I'm so frustrated of seeing, I'm sure you've seen it a lot, is this justification for this debt bubble. Again, a $2 trillion plus debt bubble. People are always saying, hey, they knew what they were getting into. Why should I be forced to pay off their debt? I know you've heard this probably and seen this untold times. What is your response to this, this justification for this current systemic problem that people, that students knew what they were doing and nobody else should be forced to, quote, pay off their debt? Yeah, so there's actually a few people who are in certain situations that people, I think, don't think know about. One, people go to predatory for-profit colleges that get scammed and get defrauded and get lied to. You also have folks who have been put in very horrible situations where someone took loans out, often a family member, on their behalf without them knowing. So, you know, there is a chunk of debtors who that actually doesn't actually literally apply to legally, um, you know, but sort of to the majority, um, um, you know, sort of the standard sort of student debtor that I think people are talking about. Um, first of all, education is a right. And so when we send our kids to third grade and eighth grade, 
and we send them to public school. <laughs> we call it public school for a reason, right? Because we're not paying for it. Um, and so we actually had a time when education at the higher ed level used to be free. It was mostly for white males. Um, but that's not unheard of in the United States. And it's definitely not heard of around the country, around the world, where uh, a lot of people go to college for free. Um, I, th I think what people don't understand is that student debt relief is not handing a check to people. So when someone borrowed money to go to college, the loan, the money for that loan already went out the door from the federal government. Um, by the time when that money was lent, the money went out the door. And so, um, you know, student debt relief is not actually giving people money. It's just telling them that they don't have to make future payments. And that's actually what the Department of Education already does. There's a bevy of forgiveness programs, right? They're called forgiveness programs that you enroll in that say, well, we're going to make it so that you don't actually maybe pay off this entire balance, but you just pay for a certain amount of time, depending on whatever vibe we set. And that's what your payment plan is going to be. Um, and so student debt relief, one way to think about it is a quicker, uh, uh, you know, payment plan, which is rather than make people pay for 10 years, um, or 20 years, it's just make them pay for zero years. That money's already gone out the door. Um, and the department of education already knows that they're not going to get that money back. The government knows they're not getting $2 trillion uh, worth of student loan payments from people which is why they set your payment plans accordingly, because they know there's no way you would be able to afford that. It's just a game for them of what's the most amount of money they can get from you um, without you literally dying, and maybe so. Um, and so I think people think that borrowing money from the federal government to go to college is the same as um, you know borrowing $5 from your friend. Uh, it's just not, it's not the same, the federal government um, is the same person that is distributing the money is the, is the same uh, entity that is producing the money. And so it's just not the same as you as a person or like a state government. Yeah, there's um, just a real misunderstanding about the functionality because the only people who really want the money right now are these private servicers who are uh, who I, I need to deal with a company called Advantage. I'm not dealing with the federal government anymore. And Advantage has made it incredibly difficult to do anything with my loan because they want to set me on an extremely high payment plan so they can get as much money from me as possible. Yeah. Just and, and I saw tons and tons of people over the past few days as they prepare for payments to resume talk about how difficult it is to interact with these private companies. Again, this is not the federal government. That's not who's getting the money. It's these private companies. So when people are out there saying, like, why should I have to pay off your debt? Hey, buddy, you kind of already did. <laughs> like, uh, the only person you're caping for right now is some CEO at a private servicer. Uh, let's let's get into the, the forgiveness part of it. So like we mentioned earlier, Biden tried to cancel anywhere from 10 to 20,000. For some people, it was a means-tested program. The Supreme Court shut that down. To many people, especially on the right, that's, hey, that's it. Can't do it anymore. But that's not necessarily the case. Could you talk about in, you know, even in general terms, we don't need to get it super mm -hmm. into the weeds, but generally there are avenues that the Biden administration could still take to cancel student loan debt. Is that right? Exactly. So the Biden administration announced their first attempt at relief using the HEROES Authority. 
which Heroes is based out of a 2003 law that says the Biden administration can waive or modify student loans in the wake of an emergency. Hence, COVID-19 was an emergency, and that's why he did that. Uh, the Supreme Court said, you know, hey, you can't do this with the Heroes Authority. Now, that was, a, as Justin Kagan put it, a violation of the Constitution. They grossly overstepped their authority in that decision. But their decision was not that President Biden cannot cancel student debt as a concept, is that he couldn't use the hero's authority. And so what that means is the Biden administration could cancel student debt using a different legal authority. Uh, and so that's immediately, a couple hours after that Supreme Court decision, is what Biden announced, that he was going to do a second attempt at canceling student debt using the Higher Education Act of 1965. And so he is uh, you know, trying to do student debt relief. Uh, he didn't completely give up on it. Still, he's doing it quite poorly. And so rather than uh, issue an executive order to cancel student debt, he's going through a, a very lengthy and tedious rulemaking process. And so basically what that means is from the moment he announced it to when it finishes, which could totally be a year uh, from after he announced it, which would be like next summer. Basically, there's a consensus or, you know, a consensus could possibly be drawn from a committee of negotiators, right? Some student loan borrowers, maybe an organization, maybe someone from the Department of Education, maybe someone from AidVantage all gets together in a room and talks about a student loan program. It gets proposed and then maybe it gets implemented. Um, this rulemaking process isn't necessarily shielded from the courts. The Supreme Court could still certainly challenge a rulemaking process. Um, but what I think is important here is that this is a game of speed and not necessarily legal authority. It's great that the Biden administration is doing a second attempt at trying to enact student debt relief, um, where they made a mistake again, um, is that rather than try to implement relief through an executive order, which would be very swift, very immediate, doing it automatically, just canceling the debt wiping people's balances out, not giving it enough time for right-wing extremists, conservative litigants to put up a fight. People's debts would just be canceled. He's going through this rulemaking process. But the rulemaking process doesn't um, uh, exclude Biden's ability to just simply start canceling debts now. He can still do that uh, with a variety of other tools at his disposal. I think an example of that that we just saw there's this you know, announcement that happened recently, $39 billion for 804,000 borrowers. A lot of people are like, what is this? Is, is this me? Those are people who you know, have been in income-driven repayment programs for over 20 years. Their debt should have been canceled uh, at 20 years and just wasn't because the payment program is broken. And so what the government is doing is automatically adjusting the adjusting these accounts, say, if you've been paying for longer than 20 years, we're just going to wipe your debt away and, and sort of make you debt free. You know, they're doing it in these small batches. There's almost 5 million people who are eligible for having all of their debt wiped out, but they're still doing it in this super slow manner. And so we're just pushing the Biden administration to say, actually cancel the debt and do it fast. This is a game of speed. Uh, and, um, the Supreme, there's no law on the books that is good enough for this conservative Supreme Court. 
Congress could pass a new law today saying Biden can cancel student debt and John Roberts is going to go in a tirade about what the word can means, right? There's there's nothing you can do. And so what we're saying is the Biden administration should just eliminate the student debt if the Supreme Court wants to uh, go as far as to, you know, say we want to reimpose the debt on people or, you know, you can't do that in the future then I think we should have that battle with the Supreme Court. But right now, there's still lots of pressure to be had on, on the Biden administration to actually go forward with relief. Let's let's talk about what this restart looks like. Like I mentioned, I was told my, my, pay, my payment was going to be 980. They are rolling out this save plan that they're touting as the most affordable plan ever. I don't think I was in that because... <laughs> Based on what their calculations were and what I make, that was much higher and just a rough calculation. My debt at this rate would have been paid off in like seven years or something, which isn't what I understand the terms of a IDR to be. But we're seeing a lot of people. And again, I think you're going to see some sleight of hand from private servicers just trying to get as much as they can from people. This can't be a perfectly (laughs) clean process. You're restarting loan payments for 40 million plus people all at the same time. I mean, what are you all seeing from borrowers that you work with, that you talk to? It does seem like a mess, is it not? It's much larger than a mess. I mean, first of all, the save plan is is sort of like, you know, when you go shopping and you see a, a big sign that says buy one, get one, and you just assume that means... If you buy one, the next one's free, and then you get to the register, and they're like, no, there's a small print here that basically means nothing that you saw was true. Um, No, these income-driven repayment plans don't actually work. They're very broken. Um, You know, if you make under $33,000 a year, um, you're eligible for a $0 a month payment, and your interest won't accrue, and that's great for that person. That's great for people who make minimum wage. Um, they shouldn't have to pay on student loans anyway, especially if you're making under $33,000 a year, especially if you're making minimum wage. Um, you know, there has never been a type of portfolio that has stopped for several years and then restarted like this student debt portfolio. Tens of millions of people um you know, going back into a repayment is just completely unprecedented. Uh, the federal government owning the debt, but having a select few group of private companies who have very perverse incentives to not actually help the people that whose debt they're servicing, as this operating as a sort of middleman to tens of millions of people who don't have enough money to get by, it's just an awful situation. Um, there are people we've heard from our members who their balances are incorrect. They are signing up for plans and their the calculator is miscalculating. <laughs> um, there we're hearing from people who, you know, I enrolled in a plan and the government told me it's too late to go back and enroll in a different type of plan because I, I thought this was going to work for me and it's actually going to put me in a worse situation. I mean, you know, people who have switched servicers two or three times over, um, people who are still waiting for their application to get back to them from public service loan forgiveness. I mean, it's just a 
it is an absolute mess. Um, and on top of it, people just can't afford to pay. Um, in 2019, I think someone default, a student loan borrower defaulted on their student debt every 30 seconds. I mean, we're going, that's what we're going back to. And it's, it's, it is awful that for the past few years, Secretary Cardona, President Biden, the, you know, spokespeople for the White House have constantly said, you know, we can't return to a repayment system that's broken. Um, and that's exactly what we're doing. Um, and we don't have relief, which is, which is the huge part of it, right? And so the least that, um, you know, the Biden administration could do, I think, is sort of what they're trying to do with this on-ramp, which basically says, you know, they're not talking about it a lot, but there's a clip of Biden from when he announced it that's like, if you miss your payment, well, you don't really have to make your payment, which is a huge admission that this that the system is broken, right? Which is, we're not going to report you to credit reporting agencies. You know, you won't go into default. You won't become delinquent. Um, um, you know, it. You know, you don't have to make a payment. Starts to really mimic a student debt strike. <laughs> you know, hey, just don't make a payment. Um, and so, I think in a lot of ways, the on ramp is an admission that there's a, a broken system. I mean, the interest is still going to accrue and, you know, you won't get credit for public service loan forgiveness, but that's probably going to be a lot of, that's probably going to be a really good option for some people who say, there's just no way I can make this payment. I'm just going to take from October of 2023 to September of 2024, uh, or, or maybe shorter than that, depending on how long I need and just not make a payment, um, which makes a lot of sense when income driven repayment plans are not designed for you to pay off the full balance. The monthly payment is based off of your income, not your balance. And so, um, you know, if you have a $90,000, $150,000 balance or, or something that you know is out of reach for you to pay off in the next 10 or 20 years, uh, you know, depending on your income, Maybe your best option is to simply not pay for a couple of months and then enroll in that income-driven repayment plan um, and see if you can get the lowest type of payment that you can. But the reality is all of this is broken and there are no good options because the best option would just be to cancel it. Yeah, I, I found it to be rigid. There wasn't any uh, any inputs on the borrower side for cost of living expenses that you have like i mean between rent bills just from as someone who had to work through college and grad mm -hmm. school and couldn't necessarily afford <laughs> for that as is racking up credit card debt uh touches tons and tons of expenses accumulating over the years and so many people are in the situation it doesn't factor in any of that it's just yeah you're just gonna pay this much Okay, well, this is just not what I can afford. Uh, so I find it—I found it to be really rigid and unforgiving, not really accounting for people's unique circumstances. But you all have a tool that I found really interesting, and I think a lot of listeners might as well. You released a—sorry uh, to be redundant—a student debt release tool, the first of its kind. Could you talk to people and tell them about this tool? what it could potentially do uh, and how to, how to find it. Yeah. I think I should probably tell a 
a chronological story that will make the current tool make more sense. Sure. Um, and maybe have people believe in the possibility of using the tool. Um, so in 2015, the debt collective had all of these borrowers who had been defrauded by these predatory colleges, Corinthian, ITT Tech, you know, our institute, several different predatory schools. There was a clause in the Higher Education Act that says if you were defrauded by a school, if you were taken advantage of, you're entitled to student debt relief. But there was no actual bureaucratic way in which you could pursue that debt relief. It just didn't exist. There was no one to talk to. There was no form to fill out. There was no button to push. And so the Debt Collective created our own tool um, that tens of thousands of people filled out on our website. And we sent these applications to the Department of Education. This is in 2015. And said, hey, in the Higher Education Act, there's this clause around borrower defense that says if you were taken advantage of, you should have your debts canceled. We collected some information from people and you should cancel these people's debts. And the long story short of that is the Department of Education copied our form, made a couple of tweaks, put it on their website. And now if you went to one of these predatory schools, you fill out a form, it's quite lengthy, but you fill out a form and the government can cancel your student loans. Um, and they tout that, right? Tens of billions of dollars. There was an announcement just this week, you know, where, you know, Ashford University took advantage of people and were canceling people's debts from there. That's because of this tool that the Debt, debt Collective created several years ago, um, creating something that never existed. And now it is a part of the government. Um, we're doing the same thing with this student debt release tool. So we're saying rather than limit it to people who were defrauded by a predatory college, we're citing the compromise, settle, and release authority within the Higher Education Act that says, actually, the, the Secretary of Education has broad authority to eliminate student debt at their discretion, at the Secretary's discretion. And so anyone should be eligible for student debt relief. Um, that's our interpretation of the clause. And that's the Biden administration's interpretation of the clause, because that's what they're that's the exact authority they're using on the second attempt to eliminate student loan debt. And so what the tool does is prompt people to, you know, answer a couple of questions about their loan. For example, who's your servicer? Were you eligible for Biden's original relief plan? You know, are, are you eligible for a Pell Grant? It, it prompts you to, uh, you know talk sort of openly about your specific situation, uh, how student loans have, uh, you know, individually affected you and your household, especially in the wake of COVID. And it files directly to the Department of Education and some folks in the White House. And that type of tool for broad scale relief has simply never existed until we've created it uh, just in this month of August. Um, in the first 72 hours, over 10,000 people have filled it out and uh, sent an appeal to the Department of Education. I can't guarantee that the Department of Education is going to actually cancel your debt or respond, right? This is a movement. This is organizing. This is what we're doing. Uh, but the power is in the numbers. And I think we have a success story with how borrower defense played out and how the specific tool has been used. You know, there's a another quick story of, you know, one of my colleagues, Eleni, wrote a couple of stories in the New Yorker 
that talked about these older Americans that have been suffering with student loan debt, people in their 80s and even their 90s. Um, it got so much attention that uh, people at the Department of Education uh, just canceled these people's debts because it simply was a lot of bad press. Um, when we asked, how, how did you cancel this, these people's debts? They say compromise and settle authority. Now, that's not going to get a lot of attention or, or a Supreme Court, you know, one person, no one's going to, you know, Betsy DeVos's, you know, dark money organization is not going to file a lawsuit over one individual. Um, but the reality is the Biden administration can just cancel people's debts when they want to, because that's the authority that they have. Um, and so that's what this student debt release tool is built off of those concepts. Um, and so, like I said, thousands of people have already used it in the first couple of days. And, you know, we're expecting a response from the Department of Education. Um, I think it would be telling whether they respond or not. Uh, either way, it's, it's going to sort of allude to where they are in the political winds. But you can go to debtcollective.org and fill out or at Strike Debt on Twitter. The link should be somewhere around there. And you can actually fill out this tool for free and appeal to directly to the Department of Education and demand that your, your debts be canceled. It's, it's a brilliant strategy because within all of these other things that you've done, you see time and time again, they are acknowledging through their actions that they have this authority. And doing it like this, yeah, you, you fill out this, this form, you, you fill out this letter, you send it to them, and they do it on an interpersonal basis. It might be tedious for whoever has to handle it, but you're not going to get that same type of pushback. You know, you're not going to have right-wing groups file a legal challenge for every single act of forgiveness. It, it kind of helps keep scrutiny off of what they're doing. And then the result, like just because of how the internet works, how people in society communicate and interact, you're going to get post after post after post to people announcing and celebrating that they had their debt uh, uh, forgiven, which from, if you want to look at it, which I know this is a factor for, for some people in the Biden administration because they are, they want him to win and maybe have a foot in the campaign camp. That is free organic marketing and press for that campaign for their 2024 hopes. It's like, it really is a, a genius strategy. Uh, so I would encourage people to go to debtcollective.org uh, and, and, and fill out this form. Uh, I did it. It took 10 minutes and I got a nice little letter uh, CC'd. I was CC'd on uh, to Department of Education officials uh, and lawyers. Braxton, I love this. I love what you all are doing. Uh, how can people... Find out more information about that collective, get involved, take action, and also find you all uh, on, on, online. First of all, you're absolutely right. There's no better free press than millions of people <laughs> telling their friends, their family, posting online, um, having parties, and telling people that their debt was canceled. I mean, no one ever says, my debt was canceled, and you get a neutral or, or bad response. Everyone immediately smiles. <laughs> it's a great thing to have happen. Um, and why would we not do that for millions of people in the wake of an election or 
just because I don't know. Um, but yeah, the debt collective can be found, you know, at the debt collective on Instagram and at strike debt on Twitter. And then our website is debtcollective.org. There you can actually join the union and become a dues paying member, whether that's $0 a month or whatever you can afford. Um, and then you can be connected to a variety of people around the country and hopefully in your local community where you can start talking and scheming about what you can do as a debt collective member, as a debtor in your own community. Um, you know, we don't just organize around student loan debt. We also organize organize around medical debt, criminal legal debt, housing and back rent debt. Um, and so I think that's really important because, you know, like I said at the top, we're a union of debtors. The thing that workers have is that they share a factory floor. And so they see each other every day on Zoom or on a factory floor. Debtors are in the dark. Debtors don't know each other. They're, we don't go uh, to a shared space. And so, you know, one of the things that the Debt Collective provides, if anything, is a space for people who are in debt to talk to other people who are in debt, which has been amazing for so many reasons. I mean, we've I've literally seen people, you know, say, hey, you know, has anybody been to this school? I, I've been thinking about enrolling. And someone says, don't go there. That's that school is, is a scam. <laughs> um, you know, we've had people who say, I, I haven't spoken about how this debt has been crushing me for decades. And just having someone who can talk to me about it is really important for people. So, uh, you know, there's also plenty of other benefits to being in the debt collective. For example, you know, being sort of the first to know about these sorts of tools and the debt dispute tools that we have, you know, you get hands on sort of personal interaction with, you know, experts who can maybe help you on your specific situation. Um, and all of that is important because debtors have to band together and be as organized as creditors are. Um, so debtcollective.org, you can look more there and start to scheme and uh, fight with us. Love it. I just became a member. I went to debtcollective.org. I joined the union. I would encourage everyone listening to do so as well. Braxton, thank you so, so much for joining me and all of your work with the Debt Collective. Really, really appreciate your time. Jordan, thanks you so much for having me. I'm glad you're a member. Now we're, now we're, um, I don't have a word for union buddies i don't have a <laughs> <laughs> well i mean we're already gamers so we took our solidarity to the next level okay that is true that is true um <laughs> you're player one i'm player two <laughs> i love it i love it thank you so much man thanks for having me <laughs>